sing and it's beautiful wow my basket case <laughs> I think of the lyrics of that song uh, and the church of Christ was born and the yeah. spirit lit the flame and this gospel truth of all shall not kneel shall not faint and I think we have a tendency to look at that and think like oh that's a prideful thing we will not kneel or not faint and then God took my heart to Matthew 16 he's the Lord is talking to, to Peter and he said, hey, you're Peter, and on you, or because of work that you're going to do, I'm going I'm to build my church. And not even the gates of hell will stand against it. I think maybe that's a top five misunderstood passage. When we think about gates of hell, we think there's, there's some battle. But really the idea is that the Lord is saying to Peter, not even death can stand against the church. The thing that you are most terrified of dying and death and pain. That's not going to stop the church that I am establishing because of what I am doing through you. So that is our encouragement this morning. There is a battle to fight. We don't wage that with the weapons of the flesh. We fight by the, the, the Spirit of God and the sword of the Spirit of God, the Word of God. Wow, my heartbeat is like 7,000 beats per minute right now. So you can be seated. I'm going to pray and... I'll, God, settle my heart so that I can preach effectively in this body of believers now who love you. Do not think that uh, one of their elders is shouting at them. I pray that we would be encouraged by your word. I pray that your people would hear it. If there's something that I'm about to say that is foolish or unhelpful, take that away now and replace it with what you would have for your people. We know that you love your people very much. And you showed that love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, Jesus. We want to then with our lives because of his atoning work and how he brings us back to freedom in you. Pray that we would live our lives holy for you. Pray in his name, Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning is from Luke chapter four. And if you wanted to, you could also look at Matthew chapter 4. You could look at parts of Mark as well. And considering Matthew, Mark, and Luke all having accounts, I want us to think about what makes a, a story a story. We talk about Bible stories. Sometimes you think of a story as, well, it's something someone made up, like a tall tale or something. But when we say Bible stories, maybe a better word is an account of something that happened. So something historical that someone then wrote down as they were thinking about it because they want people in the future to know about something that happened. And everybody tells stories in a different way. So uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the recent series in the past year, The Chosen. Um, but Matthew is depicted in a very certain way, kind of a peculiar way, but a highly analytical way. So when we look at the, the gospel that Matthew writes, it's different than Mark. Mark is short and sweet. He's like, bang, bang, bang. This is, this is what it is. And then there's Luke. Luke, uh, history says, and then we know somewhat from scriptures, he was a, a doctor or someone that thought about the human body and, and what we'd say is medicine. I was at the doctor this past week a bunch of times for an eye problem. And the first time I went, the the doctor had this, I assume it was a nurse or an assistant with him, and he does the thing where he shoots the, the air at your eye and doing all the stuff, and then he's like, can you keep your eye open? And I'm like, no, I really can't keep my eye open because you're poking it. Um, but he has it stretched out, and then he starts saying things to the assistant. And he, I, I had no idea what it was. He's like, the three millimeter transmogrification slice of the anterior transverse, and everything he said just made me more scared of what he was saying. And it probably meant something to him, but it didn't mean something to me at the time. But he was writing something down or having someone transcribe something because it was important for something that he needed to remember and know and that he would use in the future. So I want you to think about Luke writing that way this morning. As we read about Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, think about Luke writing in a way where no words are extra. 
There's a purpose in everything that Luke is writing about. Sometimes in our church, we'll read the entire passage and then preach through parts of it. This morning, I'm going to go through kind of in segments. Uh, Fittingly, we're going to start in verse 1 of the passage. So Luke 4, and if you're a flipper arounder in your Bible, we're also going to be probably in Deuteronomy a little bit. Luke 4, starting in verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So as we think about Luke recording these details for us, the Spirit of God, giving him the words and then him writing them in a way that he sees fitting for the people of God. We know this, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. So if we're just reading this and we're not discerning, it's like, oh great, good detail. But you think about who Jesus is, you ever think it's weird that God needs to be led by God? So Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Why does Jesus need to be led by the Holy Spirit? Think about that question. And then he returned from the Jordan. What happened at the Jordan? Well, we know in Luke 3 or Matthew 3, Jesus was baptized. That's another one when you think about it, like, okay, Jesus was baptized. Why did God need to be baptized? And actually, if you read it in Matthew, John, the baptizer, said the same thing to Jesus. Jesus came to be baptized, and he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to baptize you. You're the one who needs to baptize me. And Jesus said, we need to do this. You need to baptize me, John, to fulfill all righteousness. That doesn't mean baptism fulfills all righteousness, but it's part of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. And then Jesus was hungry. Is God hungry? Does God ever get hungry? Does does God ever need anything? Hunger is a sign of need, that you need something. So let's think about what Luke wants us to know. And the first point I want you to focus on, just to remember from the story that Luke is telling us, is Luke wants us to know that Jesus is a man. Jesus' baptism, his dependence on the Holy Spirit, the fact that he hungered and was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert emphasizes that Jesus is a man. This does not mean that he is not God, but that he is both God and man. But what Luke wants us to understand that as Jesus is being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, he is going as a human being. And he goes into the wilderness, being led in the wilderness. Now, when you hear the number 40, when you're reading scripture, you hear someone talk about the the, the number 40, it should take you to other things that have happened in scripture. So you think about, oh, Noah on the ark. But the big one, the big 40 that, that we see is when God's people were taken out of Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years. So Luke now is wanting us to make a connection. In writing this, he's kind of assuming, but then also pointing out, I want you to think about this. 40, wilderness. And this is a connection of the exodus and then God testing his people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And listen now to the word of God. This is important. Why did God lead them for 40 years in the wilderness? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God led his people, his chosen people, into the wilderness deliberately. And he wanted to test them. By humbling them, you could translate that word as affliction, by afflicting them. And this was to test their hearts. And the way that the test was done was to see if they would obey. And now we have Jesus making that connection. We know what happened to God's people for 40 years, God testing them. Now we think of Jesus for 40 days going into the wilderness, not eating. And he wants to be tested by God and with that, tempted by the devil. And this is interesting. There's one set of circumstances that are happening here. 
God tested Jesus because he wanted him to pass the test. He wanted Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. God, the Father, wants the Son to prove that he's the perfect man. But the devil, same circumstances, is tempting Jesus amidst those in hopes of tricking Jesus into disqualifying himself from being able to fulfill all righteousness. So the devil knows who Jesus is. The devil knows the purpose of his coming because it's predicted in the scriptures. And it would seem that by Jesus adding humanity to himself, God has become vulnerable. So the devil wants to take his shots here. And the devil doesn't want Jesus to fulfill all righteousness because in all righteousness being fulfilled, then men will be saved out of that. There will be a perfect savior for God's people. And the devil hates salvation because the outcome of salvation is what? Eternal worship and praise of God and the praise of God's glorious grace. So the devil hates the praise of God and he attacks the source then that will bring that ultimate glorious uh, praise, Jesus Christ. So look what happens. Now we're in verse three. Remember, Luke is telling a story here. He wants us to think about things. The devil said to Jesus, who is extremely hungry, 40 days, probably the top end of what you can go as a human being without eating. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. I want us to keep that connection with what happened to God's people in the wilderness here. So what happened with God's people? There was wilderness, there was hunger, and there was thirst. And with those things, if you know the word of God, you can read this in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there was a pattern in God's people, and it was not a good pattern. So there was disbelief, grumbling, and rebellion. So God brings them miraculously out of Egypt, and then they run into the Red Sea. And what's the first thing that they do? They disbelieve, they grumble, and then they rebel against God and his leaders. So God parts the Red Sea in his power and grace. So they go through, but then they got thirsty. They're like, you, have, you didn't give us any water, Moses. So they disbelieve God, they grumble, and they rebel against God. So then he miraculously gives them water to drink. This is a patient God. Then they run out of food. Then they disbelieve God. They grumble and they rebel against God. And God gives them something else then to eat. And it says in the Bible that they had, they had not seen it and their fathers had not seen it. This was a new food that God created for them to consume so that they would have something to eat. Manna. And even when they had received that, they grumbled and complained, we want meat. And then God, in his grace, but also perhaps his... This, Unique kind of power says, fine, I will give you meat and I will give you so much that you're gonna throw up out your nose. Maybe it's just me who appreciates that aspect of God. God's people, when facing trial, the pattern has been that they grumble, they disbelieve God and they rebel against him. And Jesus now has deliberately, led by the Spirit, put himself in the same spot, not just going to the wilderness and following the Spirit, but he does not eat he faces the same hunger that those who came before him faced. And history has shown that when God's people hit that point in the road, they just want to rebel and ultimately they don't want to believe what God says. And the question then, the story then is, will Jesus be like the men before him or will Jesus do something greater? And then the devil tempts him, hey, feed yourself. So let's remember what the devil wants. The devil does not want Jesus to succeed. So he says, all right, we know this story, Jesus. Like, I, I see the connection. I know what's going on here. You're the son of God. You're in the wilderness. God obviously wants you to recreate what happened in the wilderness before. So go ahead and recreate it. Uh, God provided for his people in the wilderness. Fortunately, you're God. Fortunately, you're also man. So go ahead and use your divinity uh, to provide for your, for your humanity Give yourself bread from heaven, just like, just like you did before. Just, just go ahead and do that. And the heart of what the devil is tempting the Lord with here is this, the Lord Jesus. He says, you're suffering as a man right now. Use your divine power, which you have, to overcome the weakness that you have in being a man. 
You don't need to rely on your father. That's the temptation. Verse four, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then we know in Matthew's account, Jesus also says, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I, I do need to rely on my father. Three times in this passage, Jesus resists temptation in this way and overcomes it. First, he says this, it is written. He says, my foundation is what is written, what comes from the, the mouth of God. He sets scripture as the foundation. And then he, he does something else. He says specifically what is written. Now, this is important for us to understand. Jesus' weapon against the devil is not uh, a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not a worldview. Or it's not even a, a, like a, a Judeo-Christian ethic. That's not how he fights against the devil. He fights against the devil by saying, this is what the word of God says. Too many people these days talk about the Bible as a thing. Like, I have a, a biblical worldview. What matters is not an idea of the Bible. What, what matters is what the Bible says. Jesus doesn't take this idea of the Bible. He says what the Bible says, what is written. And then what he, he does, he, he lives by what is written. It controls the way he lives his life. So we see it in his priorities and his purpose. And the interesting thing in regards to temptation is what you do when you're tempted is to not do something. That's, that's how you resist temptation. You don't give in to temptation. And in what Jesus did and in not doing something, he passed the test. He proved he's the perfect man, worthy of being both, both the, the perfect example for people to look to as well as the perfect sacrifice as a man. All right, so let's look at the pattern, starting in verse four. Jesus says, it is written. What is written? Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 here, where it says, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God put his people in this spot and he gave them a new food. And he did it with a purpose so that they would know something, that life doesn't come from food, it comes from the mouth of God. God is the source of life. So Jesus lives based on what is written. And we see it in his priorities and his purpose. And there's an application in this for us. So in his priorities, I think of the woman at the well. Do you remember that story? It's in John 4. Jesus talks to the woman at the well. That's not what I want to talk about right now. After she goes away, excited about meeting the Messiah, Jesus' disciples come back with a bunch of food. And they're like, we got you food, Jesus. Like, we got you McDonald's. And Jesus says, oh, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And I, I can imagine the disciples were like, well, why'd you have us go to town then? And then Jesus responds with this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus' priorities are right. His food is to do the, the, the will of God and to accomplish his work. So his priorities are right. That should be a lesson for us in our prioritization of our life. That should be our food as well. And his purpose in coming is to live a life not to be fed, but to feed others. Again, that's an example for us. So you might say that Jesus came with a, the mentality of an apron and not a bib. Jesus did not come to have others serve him, but to, to serve others. But then there's this awesome thing. There's this application for us in that, right? But then there's a lesson as well. In living these things out in his life, Jesus demonstrates that he is the food and the life. Later in John 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life come down from heaven. So what he's saying is, I'm, I'm manna. I'm, this, I'm the lesson here. I am what you need. So Jesus' actions don't just teach us how to resist temptation. That's, that's, they do, but not only that. They show us that Jesus himself is the food that we need. So again, let's remember what Luke is trying to, to, to remind us of. God's people were led into the wilderness. Their hunger turned them away from God in disbelief. They grumbled and they rebelled. Jesus goes into the wilderness, subjects himself to the same hunger, but Jesus did not fail. Jesus succeeded. He always believed, never grumbled, and fully obeyed. 
And it proves that he's the perfect man to be our example and to carry out God's plan of salvation. So when you hunger and are tempted to disbelieve and just satisfy yourself, turn your focus to Jesus. So if you're keeping score at home or out here, Jesus won, devil zero. Verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give this, all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So the devil goes with another trick here. Remember, what's his goal? He wants Jesus to be disqualified. He doesn't want Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. He wants to corrupt the perfect man. So he goes with the temptation of right now. The devil says, we both know God has promised you glory. You see it in the prophets. It's written about you. You will be glorified. Um, But here's the deal. I can give you the glory right now. I'll give you authority and glory right now. All you have to do is worship me. Just, just make me your God, and you'll have it right away. You could think of it this way. The devil is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you know the scroll of Isaiah. And what we would say is 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, about God's suffering servant. Or, or Jesus, you know the Psalm 22, what it says you have to go through. You know these things. It's a hard road ahead for you, Jesus, but you can bypass that if you worship me. All the gain, none of the pain. The devil's tempting Jesus to disobey his father because his father's plan involves suffering. Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, It is written, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Look what Jesus did. First of all, it is written. That's the pattern. This is my foundation, what the word of God says. But he doesn't just leave it at that. It's not just an abstract idea. Jesus specifically says what is written. And what is written is all over Scripture. So it's the first commandment and what we know as the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before you. It's the greatest commandment. We see it in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's in 1 Samuel 7. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So Jesus says what is written, and then he lives based on that. The way Jesus responds to the temptation is is awesome because he completely disregards the temptation that the devil offers. The devil promises nations authority and glory, Jesus doesn't talk about those things at all. He has no regard for what the devil says. First of all, he knows that the devil's a liar. So it's not like he would keep any promise that he might make. But even deeper than that, Jesus pays no attention to the false promises of the devil because they were predicated on Jesus disobeying God. And he's not going to do that. What's the core teaching of Scripture? What is it? What's the greatest commandment? And then with that, the second greatest commandment. There's one God. Worship him alone. Serve him alone. Love God with all your being and then love others as yourself. Worship no one. Worship nothing but God. As I think about the trials of our present circumstances, whether you consider those trials to be big or little, uh, overplayed or overrated, or misunderstood perhaps, The lesson right here in this response of Jesus should give you great peace and comfort. As you think about the future, what are you called to do? Worship God alone. If you are tempted with any other form of worship, all you have to do is worship Jesus. Worship God alone. You don't have to worry about things that may be coming in the future because you can focus on worshiping God alone. So if you feel tempted by something, you can always say, I'm going to worship God alone. That's my answer for this. Jesus' Father is his priority. Our Father in heaven is our priority. End of discussion. And here's the awesome thing about what happened. We know the end of the story, right? Or the the entirety of the story. Jesus believed what, what God, his Father, promised for him. So later, the Apostle Paul wrote this about Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, 
In other words, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the awesome thing. The thing that the devil was tempting Jesus to skip over, to bypass, humility, suffering, obedience, and patience, that's exactly what would bring a greater glory than the devil could ever offer. Jesus didn't come to serve himself. He came to serve his father and the people he loves. So if you're keeping score, Jesus two, devil zero. I like the way that this is going. Verse nine, and he took him to Jerusalem. This is the devil taking Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So um, the, the pinnacle of the temple would probably be like six or seven of our buildings stacked on top of each other. Um, most likely. I, I wasn't there ever to see it, and it was torn down. So it's tough to know. But think about if you're in your neighborhood, and maybe you got two-story houses, so they're about, I don't know, 20-odd 20, 20 feet. Think of something that is like eight times as tall as that, just in the middle of your neighborhood. It's just this thing that's there, and it's the center of worship for God's people. So the, the devil takes Jesus there, and I, I believe that this is literally happening. So it's not a vision. I believe the devil took Jesus to the top there. So they're like looking down over the edge, and he sets him up there. And he says, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil in this case keeps hearing Jesus quote scripture. And he's like, I know the Bible. I have access to that. So I'm going to quote at you, Jesus, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And this is a good reminder for us that just because someone is quoting scripture in a sermon you might hear on YouTube does not mean that they understand the word of God. The devil is quoting the word of God here, but his motive is basically, Jesus, go jump off a cliff. But what's the temptation? Maybe the devil is tempting Jesus with, go prove that you're God here. Like, it would be awesome. You, you come down, the angels grab you, and then you're in front of people who are already thinking about God because they're going to the temple. You'll obviously prove that you're God there, and they'll start worshiping you right away. Maybe that's part of it. But the core temptation, and we see it in the way that Jesus responds to the devil, is, hey, Jesus, take control from God in this. God says he'll protect you. It's right there, Psalm 91. You keep saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Hey, this is written. It's right there. Prove it. Put things in motion. Uh, get things going. Make it happen. See if God responds to what you do and really does what you want in this situation. Verse 12, Jesus answered him. It said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So look at the pattern again with which Jesus responds to the devil. It is said. This is the same as it is written, right? Right? What is said? What is written? Again, we have to remember this. Jesus doesn't just say, it is written and stop there. He says specifically in the, in the word of God, what is written. And he doesn't argue with the devil about scripture. He doesn't say, you're not properly looking at that passage. You're taking it out of context. You're misusing it. Of course the devil misuses scripture. He's a liar. It's pointless to debate scripture with the devil. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Listen, as you tested him at Massah. So Jesus says what is written, and then he lives by that. To understand what it means to test God, it helps to understand what really happened at Massah. And you can read about it in Exodus 17. So the people had gone through the, the Red Sea, and they're in, into the wilderness, and they get really thirsty. So they start arguing, quarreling. And then it says that they tested God. Moses even named the place quarreling and testing. Meribah, maybe you've read about that in scripture, and Massah testing. And he named it this because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, listen, this is how the people tested God, by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Are you really here, God? To test God is to not believe what God says. Many people believe in God, that God exists. 
Throughout the ages, people have believed that. Even in the, the history recently, we look at people and they recognize that God exists. We could call it deism. They recognize that God does indeed exist. But they do not believe that God is who he says he is and that he's not just a God far away, but a God with his people in Jesus Christ. And for God's people in the wilderness, this disbelief showed up in three ways. And you, you, if you read through the account in the wilderness, it just happens over and over and again to the point it's sickening. When they disbelieve God, they start fighting with each other. Like it, it always happens. They start fighting with each other, quarreling. And then another word uh, translated either as murmuring or grumbling is the, the other thing that happens. So quarreling and grumbling or murmuring. And then if those things are not bad enough, rebellion, which is openly defying what God says and speaking against God's good character. That, that always happens. And that has not stopped. So when you see a people who are quarreling, when you see a people who are murmuring or grumbling, and when you see a people who rebel, that is to openly defy what God says, you see a people who do not believe what God says. And here, here's the, the sickening thing about this. When you don't believe what God says, you're inherently without faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. This little series that we're doing in August it's called Pastor's Choice. As I think about Jesus in the wilderness, I think about the wilderness that we're, we're facing ourselves. I'm concerned when I see quarreling, murmuring, and rebellion against God. In our, in our church, it breaks my heart when I see that. I don't know that I get afraid by it, but there's an aspect which I hope is a righteous anger when I see people quarreling and murmuring and rebelling against God. When I see my boys, so I have two boys, I have Hunter who's 11 and I have Brock who's eight. When I see them quarrel and murmur and rebel, you know what I say? I say, knock it off. And you know what's awesome? Heather, who, Heather is a very quiet spirited woman, my wife. And you know what she does when she sees the boys doing that? It's awesome. It's like a, a tiger. She's like, knock it off. Yeah, we, we shepherd their hearts too. We've read the books about shepherding a child's heart and whatnot. So um, you don't have to judge our parenting style. But when we see people doing that in, in our family, for which we're responsible of caring for, we say, don't, don't do that. And that is my uh, admonishment to us, all of us together, some at church, when we quarrel, when we murmur, and we, when we rebel, let's, let's knock it off. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's not have that be a part of how we communicate within our church, within our families, or even outside to the world, because we're called to be a light to the world. The world is supposed to look at us and say, why are you different? And the answer is Jesus Christ has changed and transformed our lives, and we are different from that. So when you're tempted to quarrel and murmur, first of all, I would say this. Look to the word of God and say, when has that ever worked out well for God's people? At best, nothing happens when you quarrel and rebel and murmur. And at absolute worst, there are terrible examples of things that happen. Look to God's word. Don't take my word for it up here as someone who's preaching. Go to the word of God and look for when it has gone well when those things happen. Instead, believe in God. Believe in God over and over and over in the wilderness, God showed that he keeps his promises. He loved his people so much. He knew that they would struggle in that. He even said, I will give you a visible sign of myself during the daytime. I'm gonna, you can look at this cloud, and that's going to be me, a sign that I'm with you. And then at night, it's not going to go away. You don't have to be afraid in the night because there's going to be fire that's going to show that I'm with you. There was no reason for the people to quarrel. There was no reason for them to grumble and rebel. God was with them. But here's the thing, even with those signs that God gave, his people never really believed him. And that's why what Jesus did in the wilderness was so awesome. Jesus proved that he was greater than that nation of people. He went into the wilderness and he suffered, but he never put God to the test. 
His priorities stayed the same. He didn't drift from his purpose. Even when he was tempted, probably in a way that none of us ever would be, in a greater way, he never stopped believing God. And he was the perfect man then to be an example for us and a perfect sacrifice for us thinking forward. So the score is Jesus three and devil zero. Game, set, match. Verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Having been defeated by the word of God, the devil leaves until a later time. And we know now, because we know the fullness of God's word and the whole story, that opportune time was before the cross. Jesus was tried and tempted again. And Jesus won again against the devil there. So as we think about the wilderness, I had uh, approximately 478 pages of things that are applications for us. There's just so much to learn from what God has done through his people and then how in, in Jesus Christ, all those things are fulfilled and he shows us everything. But I wanna, I wanna consider these things. So think about these things. Jesus' goal when he was tested was not to get out of the testing, but his goal was that he wanted to pass the test. So my encouragement for you, when you face a trial, when you face a trial, make it your goal not to get away from being tested, not to get away from suffering or hard things, but to amidst that test, to pass the test. And you do that through trusting the word of God and that he is indeed with you by his spirit and to rely on the truth that he's given us So pass the test. And then in that, through his victory in the wilderness, Jesus proved himself that he's the perfect example. There is a way to resist temptation. Jesus shows us the Bible must be our authority. We must know what is written and we must live by what it says. And ultimately, because Jesus is indeed the living word of God, we look to him as the way in the wilderness. And then through Jesus' victory in the wilderness, Jesus also shows that he's the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. I don't know how you feel right now based on what I've just preached. Maybe you didn't like it that I told some of you to knock it off. Maybe that worked at your heart a little bit, and I get that. Maybe you feel convicted. Maybe you feel shame or guilt or fear. But remember, like, like Israel, we grumble, we murmur, we rebel. But we can turn away from our sin because of what Jesus has done for us. And that is my exhortation as I close. Yeah, we do some pretty dumb things sometimes. We get our priorities skewed. And then we forget our purpose as individuals serving Jesus Christ and a church body serving him together. But there's no reason because of what he's done and his power that we can't turn away from that and do the right thing to serve each other and to be a light to the world. As I hear these cars, I think about that's an opportunity. Everyone driving by is an opportunity to see a body who's serving Jesus together in a way that's different than the world could ever do it because the world lacks Jesus Christ and we do not. He's given himself to us because of his sacrifice. So it's okay to feel convicted and then the negative emotions we might have, guilt, shame, and fear, those are all dealt with by the work of Jesus on the cross. Don't linger on those. Run to Jesus. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for how, you, how good you are to us and the examples we see of that, that you're patient, loving, kind, and good. Help us not to speak against you, God. To, to question openly your character. I think of the times we face that are trials, cancer, pain, suffering, loss, uncertainty, fear. Seems that those things never happen when we're outside in the sun and always at 2 a.m. when it's dark and we feel lonely. 
I pray that you would work by your spirit in us that in those moments when we feel most alone and isolated and in pain and suffering and in that suffering producing things like anger and mistrust in us, that you would by your spirit work in our hearts that we would turn to, turn to you and think of Jesus and that you by your spirit would raise up in our hearts and minds the word of God, that we would remember the truth and that we would not be deceived by the devil or the ways of this world. Pray for the hearts now that are discouraged because they know they have done wrong. I pray that they would be buoyed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would leave feeling elated at who you are and what you've done, God. Do this for those people. I pray for those who now walk confidently, that they would continue to do so, that they would not depend on themselves, but they would lean wholly on your spirit, understanding the truth of your word, that they would not become haughty, but they would associate with the lowly, that they would be a humble people who continue to rely on your word. I pray for those whose hearts are scrambled and uncertain as they think about the future. Pray that they would be encouraged knowing that you have the future. God, you know ahead because you plan ahead and we praise you for that. There's nothing that is outside the bounds of your knowledge or power. Help us to understand your great power in that. My final prayer, God, is that when we face our wildernesses, I think about individuals and their names are coming to my head and our body and the things that they face. Wilderness, dry and weary lands, pain, suffering, loneliness, temptation. Pray that they would focus on your word. Help us to remember your word, to remember that it is not distinct or separate from Jesus Christ our Lord, but Jesus Christ is the living word of God. Help us to see the Bible and Jesus, not as these distinct things, but your power working together. We love you, Father. Work in our lives now as we seek to worship you. We pray as we always do in the name of your son, Jesus, the authority that you've given us in him to pray and to boldly approach you. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. It's a common response when we are taught the Word of God. Let's not take this opportunity lightly to empty ourselves. Like the scripture says, He must increase, but we must decrease. So take this opportunity in the way between you and the Lord to lay your life down, to surrender, to humble yourself, and to be encouraged by Him filling you.
Bjorn's a mess, I'm a mess, we're all a mess. Let's just admit it. Before God, we are so quickly trying to hold on to things that we need to just let go. I think of the words of this song, you take all my questions, they're wrestled to the ground. There are things that I would bring against God and say, God, why are you doing this? Here are my questions, what are you doing? And God in his patience, it says he guides us beyond what I see now because that's all we see. Can we admit that the scope of the things in reality is greatly limited? Can we admit that? I don't have all the answers. I think I do. I think I actually have really good answers, but I don't. I don't have all of them. And so what I need to do is trust the Lord and my comfort, the thing that gives me hope, peace, and joy is knowing that you are right here next to me. I think it's Psalm 23. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You are with me, God. The devil is always going to cause us to doubt the goodness and the grace and the presence of God with you constantly. Over and over again, we need to be in the presence of God every day. We need to go to his word. When we forfeit the word of God, the temptations of this world are going to grow stronger. You have nothing to fight them anymore. The greatest joy that you and I can hold on to is the fact that God in His grace has loved us. 
has loved us and given himself for us. We need no other example. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Church, maybe there are things today. What is it today? What is it as you look forward into the future that you need to go to God with and say, Lord, you are in control. Move me, please, from fear to faith. Lord, I surrender this to you. And I'm going to have to do it tomorrow. I'm going to have to do it over and over again. What is it? Couples, families, talk today. Small groups, talk today. What are the things that you need to give over that the devil is tempting you that God is not good in? What is it? I ask you, if you don't know the goodness of God, we would love to pray with you. We would love to give you the hope of the word of God shown to us and the hope that Jesus Christ is ours. Church, I ask you to do that today. Remember, in Christ, you are loved. We love you. Go this week in the power and grace of the Lord. God bless you. We'll see you next week.